Montebello Church Sermons. That's a little improvement, isn't it? That came from that came from inside the house somewhere because as you may know, I'm we're moving. Oh, what an adventure that is. But anyway, I thought I needed a backdrop for two reasons. One is it dresses up this space a little bit, but two, we're going to be talking about the backdrop for our entire ministry uh, of the gospel of the kingdom today, because we're talking about God's perspective. And when we see things from God's perspective, it's a lot different from our earthly perspective, isn't it? Okay, first a little bit of a review. Two weeks ago, I got to share with you from Luke chapter 10, first couple of verses. And what, they, what that was, was when Jesus sent out his disciples, two by two, remember? He sent them out two by two. He gathered about 70 uh, of his followers, divided them up into pairs, sent them out to, I guess, as many as 35 places where he was going to go while he was on his way to Jerusalem. So he sent them out in pairs. And one of the things that, well, there's two things out of Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, that I wanted to leave you with. One was that perhaps we ought to use that that uh, example of Jesus who sent people out in small groups. And two is as small as you can get and still be a group. So we sent them. Now, using that as an example, I propose this. That maybe what we ought to do is be more intentional about our own grouping. And that perhaps there was power in this business of being a church of two. And so I propose that you find somebody that you could you could connect with as 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 daily as if possible, you know, as frequently as you can every day if you could and use that opportunity to be able to share with uh, one other person what the Lord was doing in your life. You know, this is actually very scriptural. Not only was Jesus giving us that example, but in Hebrews chapter 3.13, it says, Encourage one another daily while it's still called today, so that we won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I mean, it says that we should be encouraging one another daily. So why not find somebody that you can do that with? Now, I'm not going to ask you if you have a church of two yet. Because, well, I don't want to embarrass you. But here's, here's the thing. Maybe it will be easier if you knew exactly what to do if you were checking in with a church of two, either face-to-face, like in the case of a spouse, or maybe with a phone call, or maybe with a text message. But one of the things you can do when you get together is just be sure you share from the level of the heart. How are you feeling? How are you checking in at a heart level? I mean, you could give a report about what's going on, like if I were to just give you a report on what's happening while we're moving, it could be it could be depressing and, and lengthy. No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about sharing at the level of the heart. In other words, let's pay attention to what's going on with me. And also, let's pay attention what the Lord is telling us. So we have uh, some friends in an organization called Luke, uh, Luke 10, oddly enough, coincidentally. And they use in the, this Church of Two concept a, a word, sachet in order to guide their, their heart-level presentation of one another. And sachet is actually an acronym, and it stands for, well, S stands for SAD. How are you checking in today? Well, I'm checking in SAD. Or A, angry. Or S, scared. Now, stop just for a minute. 
If you know anything about spelling, you know that sachet is not spelled S-A-S. Uh, I'm an old English teacher, and this drives me absolutely loon bats. But that's not the point. The point is, let's use these as a, as a, a prompt, if you will. So S stands for sad. Are you sad today? A, angry. S, scared. H, happy. E, excited. Or perhaps T, tender. And you can swap the words around a little bit if you want to make A into anxious. You're, you're perfectly free to do that. If you want to turn T, tender, into tired, you can do that too. But just make sure that you understand that you're getting at the wisdom of your heart, you and your CO2 partner. Okay? That's just a suggestion of something else that you might be able to do. Then maybe mention to each other where the Lord has stopped you in Scripture. We, Jody and I, have often taught that it's a good idea when you read the scriptures, to just pay attention to where you, you slow down or you stumble or where you go, huh. And so in a church of two, you're, that's a place where you can share that. And finally, let's make sure we pray Luke 10 2b. Send the Lord, of, the Lord of the harvest. Beseech him to send workers into the harvest. Okay? That's where we left off, off in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Now, Pastor Dwight talked the next week about awakening us to God's power. And this week, I get the privilege of talking about awakening us to God's perspective. Because God's perspective serves as a backdrop for everything that we do as um, citizens of the kingdom and as laborers in the harvest. So let's pick up Luke chapter 10 in verse 17. And I'm just going to go ahead and share with you because at first we talked about the laborers and we talked about their mission. Then they went out and now we're picking it up in verse 17 which is when they came back. And they came back excited. I mean they were pumped because they discovered that there was power in the name of Jesus. So let's let's read what it says in the New American Standard in the subtitle, The Happy Results. Um, and the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, the 70 returned. <clears throat> I don't think that the 70 returned all at once. Jesus sent them out in pairs, presumably in all kind of different directions. So it's likely that they started trickling in. So this, this exchange between Jesus and his disciples probably represents a distillation of the things that were said when they came in. And Luke, as he, as he recorded this in this document we call the Gospel of Luke, he would have, have distilled it all down and shared with us the content of what was happening when the, when the um, excuse me, when the disciples returned. So what did they say? They were happy because they discovered that even the demons were subject to them. In your name, they said. Now, they probably trickled in and came to Jesus and gave a report. And Jesus had multiple opportunities to rejoice. But there is an interesting thing that he said, and Luke records it in verse 18. And he says to them, he said to them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. 
Isn't that interesting? The Lord just stops, and you can almost see him just sort of looking off and say, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, when did that happen? Uh, was he kind of observing sort of with a heavenly hidden camera everything that happened when his disciples were out doing the work that he'd assigned them to do? Or was he able to see into the spiritual realm what was going on at the instant all of these disciples were, were acting on his behalf? Um, I'm going to propose something else. And that is, maybe it didn't happen from our perspective at precisely that time. Maybe Jesus was in on some things that had happened at another time altogether relative to the time and space world that we're in. Because you remember, Jesus had been around for a long time. If you think about John chapter 1, first, the first chapter of John, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And they talks about how nothing happened, nothing was made without the Word's involvement at some, at some level. Well, isn't that interesting? Because the Word is Jesus. He became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus was party to a whole lot that went on throughout the span of heavenly history, if you can use the term. So let me suggest something to you. Let me suggest that there is a, a scenario or a, or a scene in heaven that Jesus may very well have been referring to, and it's in the book of Revelation. Now, I'm going to go ahead and turn there. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and do that. But I'm going to be in Revelation chapter 12. And I know we, we're usually inclined to believe that Revelation happened in the, in the, is going to happen in the future. <clears throat> but keep in mind that when we're talking about heavenly places, which are non-time is more or less irrelevant in the heavenly spaces, um, uh, relative to us, Revelation 12 could have happened anytime, maybe a long time ago. I don't know, but let's go ahead and I'm going to read it to you. Listen carefully. I think this is kind of cool, really. You probably couldn't figure that out. Here it is. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before God, our God, day and night, and they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even unto death. Stop there for just a second. <laughs> now, at first, you are a little bit concerned over what has happened here. Satan and his angels, his, <laughs> I want to say minions, but everybody knows minions are little yellow guys with, with only one eye. So hordes, Satan and his hordes. We haven't have a, had a cartoon about hordes yet. Satan and his hordes are thrown down on, on the earth. And <laughs> my first thought is that's kind of like tossing a hornet's nest into a dinner party, isn't it? 
Lord, why would you send all of those creeps into the middle of, of our world? But it's not like that. Not like that at all. Because there's this voice that appears in verse 10 and says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority, note that word, the authority of his Messiah have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before God and they overcame him. Did you hear that? Whoever this voice was, and I, I kind of want to say it was Jesus, but I don't think it was just from the, the way it, it's, it's written. I'm thinking maybe one of the angels, somebody with a certain amount of authority announces, now, now we got them. We threw those creeps out of heaven. They're no longer in the presence of God. Now they're down in the middle of our brethren who are going to kick them between here and hell. That's the image that you get. Now what, just what, if that's what Jesus is saying in verse 18 when he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What if that's what he's talking about? What if he is just telling his disciples the, what has happened in the opening of this warfare? Because notice what he says. He says, I've given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. Doesn't that sound like Revelation 12? And they overcame him. They overcame. We, us, the brethren, <laughs> have overcome the forces of darkness. And Jesus is saying, I've given you that authority. I've given you that authority to tread on scorpions, to, to tread on snakes. And basically all those are, are just analogies to the forces of darkness. Now, one other thing, but, but I'm going to double back on that real quick in just a second. He says in verse 20, Nevertheless, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Okay, that's important. Notice that the disciples aren't in heaven but their names are. They are recognized in heaven by name. Uh, there's going to be a welcome for them when that time comes, but that time is not now. It will be then. When is then? I don't know. Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia would say, soon. And we could answer, well, when is soon? And Aslan would say, to me, all time is soon. But the point is, this isn't about going to heaven. This is about having your name recorded in heaven. But right now, God has given his disciples authority to tread down serpents and snakes. I want you to notice something that's happened here. This is really cool if you think about it. Remember how we started in Luke chapter 10? We started with a harvest. We started with the, the disciples going out into the harvest to and asking the disciples to pray for that the Lord of the harvest will send more laborers out into the harvest. So they went out into the harvest field. But look now what has happened. In verse 18, they come back, and Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. You are trampling on serpents and scorpions. And all of a sudden, the harvest field has become a battlefield. From the perspective of God, the harvest field 
is also a battlefield. That may shed some light on what happens in Matthew chapter 11. Remember in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said that, this, the, that, the, uh, uh, that heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. What if the wall that they're, that they're going to be penetrating to get into heaven is a, was set up as a barrier to heaven and the violent take it by force? Maybe it's all about warfare. Maybe the perspective of God is that we are participants in the warfare for the redemption and the restoration and the reclamation of the creation. So in other words, the harvesters became warriors and they didn't even know it. They came back excited and Jesus said, oh, of course, I gave you authority, the authority of Messiah for you to go out and for you to kick the enemy between here and hell. That's probably what was so exciting for the early church when they came, when they saw new believers come into heaven and come in. It wasn't, they weren't as, as excited, I think, about, uh, about the gospel of salvation. Okay, we've got to stop here for just a second. There's really two parts to the gospel. Maybe, maybe it would be worth noting. There's two parts to this gospel message. One is the gospel of salvation, which says that, yeah, your name is recorded in the, in the books of heaven. Your destination is assured. Yes, you, you're going to experience and have the eternal life that was rightfully yours at the beginning. So yeah, there's the gospel of salvation, but then there's also the gospel of the kingdom. And the gospel of the kingdom has come near. It's here. It's now. It's unfolding right here before us. And probably there, there are probably no words that were more often spoken by Jesus when he preached and taught than the three words, kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. There is this gospel of heaven, this gospel of salvation, but there's also this gospel of the kingdom. And um, <laughs> I think maybe the early church was rejoicing over the fact that they had battle buddies, <laughs> you know, added all the time. You know, there's, uh, um, I think Major Ian Thomas describes it best, describes the distinction between the two, between this gospel of, the, of salvation, gospel of the kingdom. When he said it, when he said this, he said, to be in Christ that is redemption. But to have Christ in you, that's sanctification. To be in Christ makes you fit for heaven. But to have Christ in you makes you fit for earth. To be in Christ, or one changes your destination, but the other changes your destiny. One makes heaven your home. The other makes this world his workshop. That's what happens when we get baptized, we not only offer an identification between ourselves and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which speaks of the gospel of salvation, but it's also a declaration of our immigration into a new nation. We are turning our back. We are renouncing our citizenship in this world and stepping into our citizenship of, uh, of into the kingdom. More than that, it is our induction ceremony. Uh, we are inducted into the army of God where we step out of the harvest field and we step on to the battlefield. 
Um, I think a good illustration of this might be uh, Chronicles of Narnia. You may be familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the stories by C.S. Lewis, particularly the very first story, which is the story of, of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. But just to describe Narnia, Narnia was a, a, a magical, mythical land that was under the curse of the White Witch. And the implication of the curse was that it was always, always winter, but never Christmas, and certainly never spring. And so when Aslan, the Christ figure in the story, comes, uh, he, is, he is coming there for the purpose of breaking the curse of the White Witch and restoring Narnia to its former glory. And, of course, I don't think it's a spoiler when I tell you that there, there soon comes an epic battle between the forces of the witch and the forces of Aslan. And just at the turning of the battle, when it looks like the victory might slip away from the forces of Aslan, the forces of good, Aslan takes one of the other characters in the, in the, the story, takes them to, the, to the, the courtyards of the witch's castle. Now, one of the things that the white witch has done throughout uh, her reign is anytime somebody disagrees with her, she puts a spell on them and it, she turns them to stone. And then they are transported to the courtyard of her castle where there are a whole bunch of stone statues, which used to be some of the good Nar folks, the good citizens of Narnia. So when Aslan comes into the courtyard, as the battle rages at a distant place, he breathes on each one of the statues. And as the statues uh, are breathed upon, they are restored once again. They receive once again the life that, that was stolen from them by the witch. Now, the reason I tell you the story is because what happens next? As all of these stone statues become alive, the very first thing that they do is they leave the courtyard of the witch and they accompany Aslan and join the battle. That's what our responsibility is as the redeemed of the Lord, we, rejo we rejoin the battle. And that's what made the disciples so excited. They were excited because every person that comes into the, into their, into the kingdom becomes another voice to declare the, the gospel of the kingdom. More hands to bear the, um, the message forth. More arms to embrace people coming in. Legs to carry, another set, another set of legs to carry the gospel out into the world. That's what made them excited. You know, they weren't excited necessarily that, that um, people were, were taken, that, that, that God had taken people out of the world and got them into heaven. That wasn't what they were excited about. They were excited that God came out of heaven and entered people through the Holy Spirit. So that's what was happening. That's the whole army. That's the perspective. We're in the middle of a war, brothers and sisters. But the good news is that we have been given authority to fight that battle. Now let's talk a little bit about this warfare because we understand war differently in the world in 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 uh, in the world than than we're really talking about here. Because remember, the Apostle Paul talked about the fact that our warfare is not. Uh, with weapons of the world. It's a different warfare altogether. You know, there's a fellow by the name of Sean Davis who was an Iraqi veteran. He wrote a book called The Wax Bullet War. And he described war this way. He says, war is a machine that's designed to lose its parts as it, as it uh, rolls through lives, lands, and history. 
He said, it doesn't matter whether it has an engine or a steering wheel or no steering wheel, the results are the same. See, that's the nature of warfare in time and space. It's destructive. It is, um, it ravages, it captures, it imprisons, it overpowers. That's the nature of the warfare in the world. But as Paul says, our warfare is not of this world. It's a different kind of war. It's not a war of, of um, ravaging and capturing. It's a war of liberation. Remember what Jesus said when he was in his, in his uh, hometown? Uh, he opened in the synagogue, he opened the book of Isaiah deliberately to the place where it says, uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to release the captives, give sight to the blind, and let the oppressed go free. There's the picture of all those stone statues being set free from the curse of the white witch. So our warfare is a little different. No matter of fact, it's a lot different. Now, I don't know what it looks like in the heavenly places. I mean, it may be a bloodbath there. But here in the earthly places, we don't overcome by ravaging and capturing and imprisoning. We overcome by releasing and inviting and welcoming by accepting. So now how does that work? Now this is where I think it gets fun and this is where I want to suggest something to you. Since we step from being a harvest, mean harvesters and become warriors, let's take up the warfare of the kingdom. And what that means is, is that we invite people to be among us because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. I want to refer you again to, once again, my probably my life verse, John 13, 34, and 35, where Jesus gives a new commandment. He says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I've loved you. This is the way the world is going to know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And I point out, every time I share this verse, I point out, this is a commandment that you cannot fulfill by yourself. You thought that through? You cannot fulfill that commandment if you're going to try to do it by yourself. You have to have another to love. But the important thing about it is, apparently, love, that is to do for another person what they need to have done. Love is a practical, tangible action done on behalf of another. And what the Lord has said is when the world looks at that, they're going to know you're my disciples. So in order for us to fulfill that commandment, in order to find another, we have to be in, we have to be in companionship, in community with, another, with, with other people. Now, where do we start? Well, a church of two is a good place to start. But what would happen if you were to invite another church of two to connect with you. Here's a suggestion that I want to make as we finish up this series and as we explore the, the perspective of God. What would happen if we stopped seeing this pandemic as a bad thing? Okay, now that, that didn't sound right. Yeah, it is a bad thing, but let's not say that it's a crippling thing. This pandemic with its lockdown and its... Um, 
capacity to keep us from being close to one another? Maybe this can be, maybe this can be transformed by the power of the Spirit into something entirely different. Now, I know how sick and tired we are of Zooming. I hate Zoom calls, you know, almost as much as I hate masks. You know, we walk around and we're reminded that every one of us is toxic. And I don't like that very well, but this is the way it is. And yes, we are, we are excluded from one another, but we still got online. What would happen if we started a church online video network? COVID, Church Online Video Network. What would happen if we created churches, little churches, part of our big congregation, but in while for the duration of this thing, what would happen if we started smaller churches? What would happen if uh, your church of two linked up with another church of two and perhaps a third? That's a church of six. What would happen if you got together every week, let's say. Well, what would you do when you get together? Well, it doesn't have to take a lot of time, but maybe you could, uh, well, check in. Are you sad, angry? What's the condition of your heart? And what would happen if you shared, this is where the Lord stopped me in the scriptures today, or this is what the Holy Spirit called attention to for me today. And then what would happen then if you also prayed for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. What might happen then if as you prayed for laborers to be sent into the harvest, what would happen if he did it? What would happen if he sent somebody into your harvest and you invited him into this church? Maybe let's call it a vine church because they, they grow from place to place. Actually, what I had in mind was a strawberry plant. You know how they put out runners? Um, and then they and they get they they create root systems wherever they touch the ground, but I'm told that that strawberries aren't really a vine. <laughs> but I thought strawberry church sounded funny, so maybe a vine church, okay? And then, as your group of churches of two gets to be churches of two big, then why not start another of those churches? What might happen? If you allow the Church Online Video Network to create and grow churches all throughout Montevilla, what would happen that when the lockdown finally stops, what would happen if you all came back to meet together, bringing part of the harvest that had been granted your little cluster of groups of two? What would happen if you brought all of them back and you discovered when the pandemic is over you're not going back to church, but you're going forward to church. Because that's the purpose of the church. Not to ravage, capture, imprison, but to liberate, release, welcome, and accept. I think the happy results of going out into the harvest with an idea of the Lord of the harvest bringing the harvest in might very well change everything. I'm gonna, I've written a, a blog post about this idea of what I'm calling a vine church. Uh, perhaps we can put a link where you guys can get after it. But anyway, that's my thought about God's perspective 
and how he can change a harvest field into a battlefield. So let's pray. Master, I pray that you will draw your people together into small uh, expressions of love and that you will respond to this uh, request we're making for that you would send laborers into the harvest. Lord, I pray that you will bring the harvest in and that there will be places, even if it has to be online for a while, that there'll be places where people can come in and be accepted, loved, forgiven. And Lord, I pray that when we, when this, when this uh, time of quarantine is over, Lord God, we don't want to go back to church. We want to go forward. Lord, help us to see your transformation happen in a time when we might have thought that all we would see is limitation. Lord, thank you for sending us into the harvest. May your perspective become our perspective. To the glory of God. Amen. I want to make a suggestion. I want to suggest that if you do start a church like that, a sub-church maybe if you want to call it, a vine church, that maybe you practice as you're online in your church online video, that you might practice maybe just a little exchange for the redeemed of the Lord. And then somebody else answers, and for the king. So I'm going to finish today with that. I'm going to say that and wherever you are and say for the king. So goodbye for now. For the redeemed of the Lord. Montebello Church Sermons.